All right, today we are in Matthew 28, the end of uh, Matthew's gospel, a gospel which uh, was written primarily to uh, Jews and primarily to Jews who were in uh, Canaan, okay, as opposed to elsewhere, which is uh, you know part of the dispersion, which is what John's gospel tends to be uh, written towards. So, all right. I think we're actually going to, I'm actually going to read a little more than we have up there. I can't remember. No, I got it all. Good. Uh, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, um, a thought came to me that I need to make sure that... Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the scriptures uh, which you have given us by the Spirit to make us wise for salvation through faith in your Son. Make it profitable for us, teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. We ask that you would make us mature, equipped for good works, as we study the scriptures this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week I talked about uh, the problem in the Lutheran church in the early 20th century with respect to cheap grace. And I don't want you to think that that was a Lutheran problem. Uh, It goes far beyond that. Uh, In America particularly among dispensationalists, but it didn't, didn't stay limited to that, uh, was a problem of easy believism that emerged and was uh, and produced in the late 80s what became known as the Lordship Controversy. And uh, what easy believism is, is essentially the view uh, that faith brings about justification. Okay, so far we're okay with that. But it's the rest of it that we struggle with, uh, that we ought to uh, have a critique of, and because what they did is they made sanctification optional. And as this controversy unfolded, what happened then, and that controversy is what happens in almost every controversy, uh, the sides that were this far apart got farther and farther apart, as people got more and more extreme in how they expressed their views in order to counteract those bad people over there, or that those bad people over there, okay? It went so far as to uh, one theologian uh, from Dallas Seminary said, talked about the concept of the unbelieving believer, that justification was such that you could stop believing in Jesus and still experience salvation, to which... I scratched my head, uh, and so should you. That shows to the, ex- the extremes that some of this went to. And 
We're going to speak a little more about that problem of easy believism, uh, but also try and protect it from the legalism that can easily result when we try to correct easy believism. Here, we are at the conclusion of Matthew's gospel. Uh, here, we are at what we have often called the Great Commission, uh, because of from whom it comes, and uh, also the size of this commission. Okay, uh, but we have to remember that the one who speaks it is Jesus. This Jesus who has been crucified, who was dead, who was buried and has been resurrected for sins and salvation. And so this is going to be spoken within the context of redemption. And we must never forget the reality of redemption when we speak about discipleship. Yeah. Discipleship, apart from redemption, accomplished by Christ, will leave us with legalism. It becomes all about kind of what you do, and it neglects the one for whom you do it, and the one who has given you the capacity to do it. <laughs> and so, as we, as we were listening to Deuteronomy six, I want to want you to draw. I want to draw your attention to the fact that while he's talking about what we do and about following everything God has said, uh, right in there is the reality of love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the only way we can do that is if we have been redeemed by Christ. Redemption comes first, so to speak. And so, as I said, redemption, yeah, discipleship apart from redemption accomplished by Christ leaves us with legalism. And we don't want that. The disciples, the 11 that are left, they obeyed Jesus' instruction or command, might be another word, via the Marys, the two Marys who were at the grave. Okay? Uh, Jesus gave this command to them, and they went to the disciples, and they communicated it to the disciples. And the disciples didn't say, hey, you can't tell us that. Uh, they said, oh, Jesus told you that. Okay, we'll do it. And so they go to this mountain in Galilee, an unnamed mountain, most likely because uh, Matthew understands our, our tendency to try and create sacred sites where there are no sacred sites. So people aren't trying to find the mountain and go to the mountain and build some shrine on this mountain and missing the whole point that it's about Jesus and what he calls us to do, not about a shrine on a particular mountain. But what's fascinating as we think about Matthew's gospel, uh, Michael Green out of England has said that, that, that Matthew has structured his gospel in part about around three mountain experiences. The first is the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, we, we learn about the nature of the kingdom that Jesus comes to bring. And the second mount is the Mount of Transfiguration, where they see not the nature of the kingdom, but they see the nature of Jesus, who he really is, and his glory. And here, on the third and last mountain, uh, we discovered the universal mission of the church. Now, 
I want to be careful about that word universal. It's not talking about salvation that's universal, but it's talking about the scope of the mission, uh, that it's not limited to Palestine. It's not limited to the, the Near East. It's not limited to one hemisphere. It's going to expand everywhere universally. But what Matthew wants us to see here initially is, is that when they saw him, Jesus, they worshipped him, That's important. The resurrection is intended to produce worship within us. And that worship is going to be what discipleship flows out of. Faith in a risen Jesus will produce worship for that risen Jesus, which will produce discipleship with respect to that risen Jesus. Worship. The particular word that is used here is, often means uh, to kiss the hand, to show allegiance. We see an example of that in Psalm 2 when it says in verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry. It's not talking about kissing him on the lips. It's about most likely kissing him on the hand or kissing him on the cheek. But it, either way, it is a sign of allegiance, a sign of submission, a sign of homage to that particular person. But this word can also refer to the practice of bending the knee before somebody. So, you know, kind of bowing down like this, recognizing their authority over you, and again, that concept of paying homage, but it can also refer to a more extreme version, which we see in the, a lot of times in the Far East, prostrating oneself such that your whole body, you're, you're kneeling, but your head is touching the ground, so you don't dare look at the mighty potentate. Okay, and if you're familiar with uh, the play or the movie, The King and I, you've seen that. Because uh, that's what all the members of the court did. They were not supposed to look upon the king. So these men worshipped. We're not sure in which particular fashion uh, they worshipped. But they worshipped him. Keep in mind, who would a good Jew worship? That is reserved to Yahweh alone. And so when they're bowing the knee, when they're kissing the hand, when they're prostrating themselves, they would be committing apostasy if they did not believe that this resurrected Jesus was, in fact, Yahweh himself in the flesh. So uh, we, we see here, one of the, the proofs of the divinity of Christ. And discipleship makes no sense if Jesus is not divine. But some of them doubted. They wavered. They hesitated. Uh, this is all new to them. Let's be kind to them in, in a sense. Uh, this is mind-blowing because uh, they've never ever heard of someone who has been resurrected, much less seen one, touched one, listened to one. And so uh, they're, in a sense, they see what they see. They, they kind of know what they know, but it's still overwhelming to them. And so there's still presence of some doubt or hesitation 
And I think this ought to remind us and encourage us uh, that Jesus is not for those with perfect faith. Jesus is not simply for those with a perfect record. But Jesus is for people like us who struggle with hesitations, who struggle with doubts, uh, who just plain struggle. Think about this in terms of, say, work or school. And in work, thinking more of the apprentice or the intern, you don't expect that person to have it all together, right? That's why they're an apprentice. They're there to learn the business. They're learned how to do things. And you don't expect them to do it all perfectly. And same thing at school. Why are people at school? To learn. Okay, They're not there because they've mastered the material. It's so that they can master the material. But we still recognize that people graduate even though 99.99999% of them haven't mastered the material. It's intended to be a foundation for continuing future growth, development, learning. Disciples are not people who have it all together. They're people that Jesus is building into and investing into, not ones that have already passed the test so to speak. And so Jesus does not condemn these disciples, and neither does he condemn uh, condemn others who waver, because Jesus uses people who are flawed, people who are weak. And so back to the question we asked last week that I forgot to start this whole thing with, because this is part two of that question. What is a disciple? We see that a disciple is a flawed person who nonetheless worships Jesus. And so a disciple is a flawed person who worships Jesus. Now, Jesus speaks to the disciples. He's received their worship, and now he begins to address them, and he starts by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one spoken of in Psalm 2. Jesus is the one that is spoken of in the latter parts of Isaiah's uh, prophecies, the servant of the Lord who was to come. Jesus is the Son of Man that Daniel sees in his vision in heaven. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of the covenant with David. And so all authority has been given to him. He has the right to rule. He also has the responsibility to rule. That's what it means to have authority. The right to right and responsibility to rule. Because if you don't do it, someone who shouldn't be will. And so Jesus is declaring that he has been invested as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, as the Son of David, He has been invested with full authority. In other words, because it's all authority in heaven and on earth 
his authority knows no bounds. It's not limited by geography. It's not even limited to this planet. It's not limited to people groups or persons. In other words, there is no disciple nor potential disciple who lies outside the authority of Jesus. So what this says on the flip side of that is that disciples are recognized and submit to his authority over their lives, which means uh, that they submit to his authority when he speaks about how they're to work. And sometimes with regard to what kind of work they can do. Now, I don't mean, you know, that I'll I'll pick on Jack today, because I don't pick on Jack usually. Uh, What I'm not saying is, you know, Jack has to sit and listen for 50 days to find out whether he should have the job that he has. I'm I'm talking about there's work that's legitimate, okay? And there's work that is necessarily sinful, okay? There are no drug dealers for Jesus, okay? Wait a minute, pharmacists. No, I'm just kidding about that. Um, But you understand, the the illegal economy is not something uh, that a Christian can legitimately do, all right? So that's what I'm getting at. But not just the kind of work you do, but how you go about your work, Jesus speaks to. Because he speaks about honest measures and fair weights, and paying people when you owe them as opposed to withholding it so that they are harmed. Same thing about relationships. Uh, How we interact with one another matters. Jesus speaks to that, and when he speaks to that, we are intended to listen to that, to submit to that. And so when we think of it that way, we we automatically need to be thinking of Psalm 1, which we used as our call to worship. Uh, you know, blessed is the one who, who listens to the counsel of the Lord, who meditates on his word day and night. And other pictures of that are from like Psalm, uh, Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. In other words, all your heart, not part of your heart. All your ways, not just some of your ways. Don't say that Jesus can speak to your work life and not your married life. Or, as some people do, your married life, but not your work life. It's all under the authority of Jesus. Similarly, we see in in Numbers 5, sorry, 15. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. And so in Numbers 15, he is addressing the fact uh, that we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, We're prone to, as he says, follow our hearts, follow our eyes, the the problem of our eyes coveting everything that we see, looking for the good place, not necessarily the right place. 
Moses recognizing, because of the Lord, the, the tendency we have to do these very things. And the tassels that he's speaking of here were to remind them of their commitment, their allegiance to the authority of God and not themselves. Don't listen to your heart. It will not bring you to the right place. But we see this principle also in Deuteronomy 6. That they were to you know, put the word of the Lord and the commands of the Lord, you know, not just uh, in their phylacteries, but all over the place in their homes. So that they would see, they would remember, and then they would begin to obey because they loved the Lord their God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. All commitments do come with limits. A commitment that you make today is going to limit your future options. It's going to limit your future choices. And we need to recognize that. Most of us recognize this in other areas of life. Marriage, for instance. Uh, You recognize in your marriage vows that you forsake all other people for this one primary relationship with another human being. And so that rules out romantic relationships with anyone else. But it's not just that. Now there's, there, it places limitations on what you can do with your time, for instance. Uh, that commitment to marriage means you actually have to be present. <laughs> your, your free time is not your free time. It also belongs to another. And that, that kind of mixture of sacrifice and submission is difficult. It's, and it doesn't end. The, the stakes increase as time goes by, it seems. Um, the pain of submission and the pain of sacrifice are real for both parties. We just tend to focus on the pain that we experience, the limitations that we feel, and don't necessarily consider the limitations the partner that we have experiences. Same thing happens when you have kids. Now even less of your time is your own. (laughs) Even your time as a couple is not your own. But now most of it is given over to this task of of raising children so that they can go out in the world and that they can have jobs and they can have relationships that matter and last and they can be healthy people and hopefully godly people. And so, again, more limitations placed upon you. That means, I'm saying this as an illustration of the fact that discipleship will bring with it limitations. It will exclude certain things for you. It will take time that you might want to put somewhere else. Discipleship has limitations. And so when we ask that question of what, or, yeah, what is a disciple, a disciple is someone who willingly submits to Christ's authority. And, and what that gets at is a growth in humility, that, a growth that, that says in more and more ways, Jesus knows better than me. Jesus knows better than me. Jesus knows better than me. And so Jesus continues on the basis of his authority. There is a consequence. There is a therefore 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Depends on and manifests the authority Jesus has just declared that he has received. Now, there's a couple of implications here. One of which is that ethnic background isn't important for disciples. Okay? They're from various cultural backgrounds, they're from various ethnic backgrounds, and they go to various ethnic backgrounds. Okay? In other words, these original 11 can't say, I can't go to Egypt, the gospel's not for them. They can't say, I refuse to go to India because the gospel's not for them. They can't say, I refuse to go to Assyria because the gospel's not for them. I refuse to go to Rome because the gospel's not for them. The gospel is for all peoples. Not just the ones that look like us, talk like us, dress like us. The idea is, as you are going to do this. So there's a sense in which the disciple, the original disciples, uh, particularly when we see Luke's commission, the commission in Luke, uh, they're to spread out, and the church was to spread out and to send people out, apostles, the, the ones who were sent, that's what it talks about. But there's also a sense, there's also the sense of ordinary Christians who are part of the church but also share in this task of discipleship. And for them, it's a more of a as-you-are-going, which is reflected in Deuteronomy 6. When were they supposed to talk to their children about the truths of what God had done for them as a people? While you're walking down the street, while you're in the house, it was everywhere, as they were going through life. And so as we're going through life, we should be engaged in that process of discipling others and or being discipled ourselves. We make disciples as we go about our lives. How are we to make disciples? Well, Jesus gets into that when he says, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, this is where it gets a little dicey, so to speak. Baptism is something for the church. It's not you personally who's going around baptizing anybody unless you happen to be a missionary. Okay, it's a different story. But generally, baptism is connected to the local church. Right? But baptism... Does is the first step, so to speak, in discipleship. Discipleship begins with baptism, a public identification with Christ, a public uh, identification with him that precedes, that supersedes our identification of the color of our skin or the culture or the language, the ethnicity that we have. It's not that I ceased to be Italian, although Amy claims I'm not really all that much Italian. That's one of our little personal jokes. Okay, but that is secondary, not even secondary, to Christian. 
identify with Christ above all things. My identity as, as a man, as male, takes second seat to Jesus. My roles in life take second seat to Jesus. My primary identity has to, has, is one that is wrapped up in Jesus. The statement is given within a missionary context. Jesus is sending them out to build his church, and that requires missionary work. And so initially, the, the apostles baptized converts, but as we see in Acts, 19, uh, Acts, we also see household baptisms. And so we believe that this is not just for the converts, but also for their children and uh, future generations as well. We see this as a continuation of the practice that began with the institution of circumcision, generation after generation, calling them to faith that that sign represents. But this causes problems in some cases. For instance, back when I was a brand new Christian, that's when a group called the Boston Church of Christ which, is, which was a spin-off of the, what normally think the Church of Christ, um, began to, well, it was very big in New England, but as I learned later on, uh, they had churches in other parts of the country as well, usually someplace close to college campuses because they liked to uh, take advantage uh, of that, that time and when people are trying to sort things out and they feel lost and alone because they don't, they're not around their parents anymore. But anyway... They believed that you must be baptized in order to be saved. But they went a little further than that. Uh, they believed that you must be baptized by them in order to be saved because they were the only real church. Okay? Uh, you know, us, we're not part of the real church in their, in their view at that point in time. They've shifted a little bit. So if you were baptized as an infant or even as uh, a teenager who made a profession of faith in another church, doesn't matter, you need to be baptized by them. One of the things that I saw happening, unfortunately, amongst college students within New England was some of them were refusing to be baptized because of the, the false teaching of the Boston Church of Christ. <laughs> they went to the other extreme. They should have been baptized, but they shouldn't have had the false doctrine of baptism that that church was teaching. Baptism matters, but baptism is not the most important thing. You're not, let's say, it's not the rite itself that produces a Christian or brings salvation. Because we have passages like 1 Corinthians 1, chapter, uh, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Salvation is always by faith. Salvation is always by faith in the message of Christ crucified. Baptism is simply saying, for a convert, I believe that. But discipleship isn't baptism alone. Jesus says that you make disciples baptizing and teaching, instructing people to observe everything that he has taught. 
And so it's not just doctrine, but it's also life. It's not just life, it's also doctrine. Both of these things matter. When we speak about life, we're, we're talking about the truths of the church, the doctrines that we believe applied to how we're supposed to live in the daily life. We're not simply pragmatic, but neither are we simply intellectual. We're intended to address both what we believe, and as a result of that, what we do, how we live. Redemption without discipleship isn't redemption. It is that easy believism that was a problem in the 80s, but still is a problem today. It it ignores the fact that we are redeemed into something, not simply from something. We're not simply redeemed from the wrath of God, but we're redeemed into the people of God, and that means a different way of life that we have to learn. Now, it's interesting. I I hadn't caught this, but if we think about what has just been said before this in Matthew's Gospel, the lies of the guards that they were told by the chief priests to spread about the resurrection, that the disciples came and stole the body, There's a contrast. Uh, Jesus is is calling them to teach the truth, not lies. Not convenient things, but sometimes hard things. Things that require everything from us. So similar to what we read in Numbers 15 and other places, we have In the New Testament, Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So there there is right there, there's that Psalm 1 thing, the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. You're meditating upon it, but it's not just for you. You're also teaching and admonishing one another with all that wisdom that you receive from the word of God by the spirit of God. That, brothers and sisters, is, we're going to get back to this later on in a different sermon, but that is the process of discipleship. Speaking God's word to one another and applying it to the situations of life. Similar, we see, is this passage that we keep coming to, or coming back to, 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is profitable for teaching. All Scripture is profitable for reproof. All Scripture is profitable for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God, the person of God, may be complete or mature, equipped for every good work. And so discipleship takes place through the word of God to people. Okay, we see this 
also in continuity or being consistent with the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, back in Genesis 17, okay, we, we have that household principle okay, that, some, that most of you agree with and some of you don't. That's okay. We're not kicking anybody out over this, right? But Abraham believed that it was credited to him as righteousness. He receives the sign of circumcision. He circumcises those who are under his authority that were male at that point. Okay? Why? So they would believe, not because they believed. And we see the same principle with regard to baptism. Joe comes to faith in Jesus Christ. He gets baptized, but he also baptizes his children, not because his children believe, but so that they might believe, because it is a sign of the covenant of grace. But you don't just baptize them. Abraham was supposed to walk in righteousness, and what does that require? That requires instruction, and he's supposed to instruct his children so that they also walk with him, and we see that principle taking place in Deuteronomy and Numbers. Baptism, instruction. It's not one or the other. It's both and in terms of how disciples are made. But teaching them what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Observe also reaches back to Genesis, particularly Genesis chapter 2 and Adam's work in the garden. He was to keep or observe the garden. He was a watchman. He was a defender. He missed the snake with tragic consequences for all of humanity. But that's what he was supposed to do. And so there's an, there is an idea that even though we've been redeemed, and as Steve Brown said controversially at the 1991 Ligonier National Conference, there is nothing you can do to add to or take away from the work of Christ on the cross for your salvation. Your obedience does not add to it. Your disobedience does not take away from it. And yet we also see obedience does matter. Obedience is a fruit of salvation. Faith, from a Reformed perspective, from the Reformation, faith unites us to Jesus, who then gives us both justification and sanctification. Calvin talks about this in his comments, and there's a commentary on Romans, particularly, I think it's chapter 8. Um, he gives us both of these things, and we can think about this in terms of the hypostatic union. The two natures of Jesus, they're distinct, they're united. There's no mixture or confusion between the two. They each remain completely, you know, fully God, fully man. Okay. Well, justification and sanctification are distinct, but they're united. Jesus gives them both to us at the same time. They're not to be confused. They're not to be combined. We're not justified because we're sanctified. But we are sanctified because we're justified. There's no one who can be sanctified if they are not also justified. But all that gets back to this reality of our union with Christ that is missing in the easy believism controversy. 
What does this mean? What I think this means, what it reveals, is that we don't just teach theology. We do teach theology. But we don't just teach theology. We are also to teach practical things. And as we were talking about this in the Vine Project, um, one of the words that we came up with that might be more clear than disciple is apprentice, or perhaps intern. You're gaining knowledge in order to do something. That's the idea of an apprentice. An apprentice um, comes and oftentimes back back in the day, would live with the person. If they like, say they were apprenticing as a blacksmith, they would live with the blacksmith. Okay? And every day they would, be, they would learn how to live as a blacksmith, not simply to do the job, but because there's other stuff that, that encompasses it. Learns how to be a blacksmith by being with a blacksmith. Christians learn how to be a Christian by being with other Christians. Community matters tremendously. And that's what's so hard about the COVID era, is that it it makes it incredibly hard to disciple people because it's harder to be with people. Obedience doesn't come naturally to us. That's part of why we need to be taught God's will. We need to be taught also how to obey. And so back to our question of what is a disciple, a disciple is, some, is a baptized and instructed person. Yes, I changed your notes if you were looking at those. A disciple is a baptized and instructed person. And part of what that points to that I'm sneaking in there is sort of a a hidden fifth point is that disciples love the scriptures, the very things that disciple them. Not every math student loves math, but every disciple loves the scriptures. We got one more. Jesus encourages them in light of this very difficult job because he says, behold, look, Hey, I'm with you always. This is another one of the alls. We have Jesus having all authority. We have Jesus talking about all that I have commanded you, and now snuck in this that always is all days, literally. But Jesus here is speaking about his presence. When John Frame talks about lordship categories within his uh, little triangle there, okay, he talks about um, authority, he talks about control, and he talks about presence. And so far, in this passage, Jesus has addressed authority, which is his, but now he speaks about presence. He is present. Just as God was present in the Garden of Eden, He's present with his people as they go about the work that he has given them. They don't go about that work alone, but they experience his presence as well. We're not alone as disciples. We're not alone as people who disciple others. 
but we see that Jesus helps us to live. Jesus helps us to disciple. As an apprentice works under the supervision of a professional, we learn under the supervision of Jesus, ultimately. He is the professional. He is the mold. He is the example. He is the model. He is everything. The one into whose image we're to be fashioned. So Jesus doesn't simply send out his disciples alone to accomplish this, but he is present with them to accomplish this. As our big brother, as our king, Jesus also looks out for us in the midst of a hostile world. And as a result of that, we can say that disciple-making churches and disciples experience the presence and blessing of Jesus as they go about the task Jesus has given them. So back to that question. What is a disciple? A disciple is someone learning from Jesus in the presence of Jesus. So, back to the beginning. That whole lordship controversy, it resulted in a number of books. I've got at least three of them in my library. And those books, as I mentioned, became more and more extreme as time went by. Both sides fundamentally, I believe, misunderstood the gospel and redemption. We are disciples because we've been redeemed. We aren't disciples in order to become redeemed. Our union with Christ by faith keeps redemption and discipleship properly related. Therefore, disciples are people who worship Christ submit to his authority, are baptized, instructed in the presence of Jesus like apprentices. This is the path Jesus has for all those whom he has redeemed. And so if we kind of wrap all that up into one shorter sentence, we get back to our big idea. Disciples are forgiven sinners who are submitting to Christ in repentance and faith in all of life. So next week we move on to a a new conviction, a biblical conviction to shape our minds about discipleship. And uh, I've not said all there is to say about what a disciple is. I've probably said too much. (laughs) I hope you aren't drowning out there. So why don't we pray? Father, this is in some ways uh, hard for us to take in. It challenges us. Our, our sinful nature, our flesh resists this truth. We struggle with the implications. I know that as a, uh, a person considering faith and even after faith, I struggled with a lot of these things. And so a lot of our life is caught up in that struggle with um, autonomy versus submission to you. We thank you that you don't leave us alone. We thank you that we have the Spirit, and by the Spirit, Christ is present with us. We ask that you would be at work to make people like this in our midst. To bring people into our midst for us to disciple. 
and to join in us in the work of discipling others. Jesus, all the authority is yours. And so we ask that you would be doing this. We're petitioning you to make this a reality in our congregation. For, for it to occupy our, our thoughts and our, and our energies. To, to be your disciples, your apprentices, and to make more apprentices. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.